0: Brian mills Snap of Le District on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you?
1: Hey, Levy. How are you? Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So you originally wanted to be a diplomat. I originally wanted to be a diplomat, but wine's kind of the same thing, but you don't have to watch what you say. And so, and so it had a little bit more of a draw towards you know, for me uh, once I started getting in it.
0: So how did you make that decision? You-
1: Well, you know, I was traveling around the country a fair bit. Um, I was living in San Diego. I thought I was going to go to graduate school, maybe go to law school. But my neighbors in San Diego were sommeliers, a guy named Roger Browning, who owns a restaurant out there now. And they would come home from work late at night, carrying bottles of California cab and like knock on our door at 1130 or midnight and be like, what are you guys doing? Come over, have dinner. And I was like, wow, this lifestyle looks like it's fun. So that's kind of how I started to get into it. I was like, maybe this is a job I can do. Just
0: answering the door around midnight <laughs> yeah. kind Hang, of hanging out with the, drunks
1: in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> the wine business. <laughs> yeah.
0: Because, you know, a lot of people, they have to go to wine, but to you, wine came to
1: yeah, you. Yeah, well, you know, I worked in restaurants, too. I grew up on the coast of Maine, and it's a super seasonal industry up there. So there's lots of restaurants that open from the end of May until the beginning of October. And so I would work in restaurants in the summertime between college. And I was sort of – so I was around hospitality, when I was going through school. And then afterwards, it's like an easy job to just pick up anywhere in the country.
0: And what kind of restaurants were you working in?
1: It was a um a mix of stuff. Ironically, my first restaurant job was a dishwasher in a Mexican food restaurant. But like the last restaurant I worked at in Maine was like a Sicilian place. I worked at sort of some American joints. When I first got into wine, there was this sort of in bed and breakfast where I was a waiter in the restaurant and the owner had a big wine cellar and he drank a lot and was single and sort of would open bottles of wine for us. And that's when I first started to have actual good wine. i mean like bottles of Olivier Leflev and, you know, Amarone, which at the time I was like, wow, this is exotic. So that's kind of how I got into it. So I was sort of around it and it was sort of something that was familiar and easy and academic At the same time, and that's kind of
0: you enjoyed some learning.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about wine. Always is that it's never ending. You know, the amount of knowledge that you can find can be as much as you're able to you know understand and take in because it changes always.
0: So, when did you start really getting serious about? Hey, I'm going to pursue a sommelier.
1: In the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, 2003, I really started to get into it. I was living in Jackson, Wyoming and skiing and working in a wine shop. Um, I broke my leg skiing and then I just worked in the wine shop full time and I started to be something that I was doing for a career. I think that was 2002, 2003, something like that. And so then I went back to Maine for a summer and then I was going to go ski in Wyoming and I was dating a girl at the time that was just said to me, why don't you just move to New York and be a sommelier? And that was 2004, and that's kind of what happened. You know, it's sort of, I was here for six months before I got my first sommelier job.
0: You arrive in New York, and did you know anyone here?
1: Yeah, I had a friend that I went to high school with who was going to Columbia. And then I had a handful of friends from childhood that were down here, but I didn't know a ton of people. But I had some restaurant experience, and getting a job as a waiter in New York City is not the most difficult thing in the world to do. So,
0: Well, for you, I mean, sometimes people say they have a hard time because they don't have New York experience and they go through a bunch of hoops, but seems like you.
1: I didn't, you know, for me anyway, it was easy. I mean, I got a job over Craigslist from Maine, you know, so I was like, they're like, can you come down for an interview? And I was like, sure. So I basically just drove eight and a half hours down here the next day for an interview for Maine. And they were like, yeah, great. When can you start? Soon?
0: Eight and a half hours (laughs) from now? (laughs) (laughs) I
1: got to find a place to live. They're like, okay, let us know when you come back. And actually, when I came back, the guy who had hired me had gotten fired. So I came down here and had an apartment, but then no job. And then I got another job pretty quickly. So it was that just coincidentally had the American Sommelier Association was holding classes there. At the restaurant? Yeah, at the restaurant that I didn't know anything about. And they were like, why are you moving to New York? And I was like, I want to get in the wine business. And they said, great. The ASA holds classes here. You can take them for free. So it sort of kismet a little bit. And I was a waiter there for six months. And then the ASA got me a job as a sommelier.
0: You were kind of like helping pour wines and stuff for the classes?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, helping pour wines, sort of organize it a little bit. And then at the same point in time, just sort of volunteering at the restaurant for, you know, I just said to him, hey, listen, if you need any help with the wine business, let me know. You know, like I'll do inventory, I'll stock. You know, I just wanted to learn. And so.
0: Was, and what restaurant was that?
1: It was a restaurant called Amuse that was Jerry Hayden and Claudia Fleming's restaurant that was on 18th Street between 6th and 7th. And before that, it was a restaurant called Tonic where Scott Carney had bought all the wine. And so the wine cellar was great because that was right after, like, I think he was working there when he got his master sommelier certificate in the late 90s. So there was all kinds of crazy wine there when I started. So, like, that was the first time I had really great wine. 90 Krug, you know, Old Roti, Charm Chambertin, things like that where, you know, those were sort of memorable bottles early
0: mid-2000s, I think a lot of people would have missed that opportunity. That's some some wine with some age from some serious producers.
1: Yeah, I remember the first, like one of the first great wines I had was 90 Krug at that place, and I was like, holy cow, this is outrageous. And still, that's one, you know, still that wine is great, and, you know, if you and I were drinking a bottle of 90 Krug right now, we'd be like, you know.
0: I had that on my anniversary a couple, not with you.
1: (laughs) You It was really (laughs) romantic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: I really enjoyed it. But, you know, a couple years ago, it was. Yeah, great as they say yeah so you're working at amuse
1: working at muse as a waiter sort of volunteering my time in the wine business uh running the wine program there was a guy named jean-luc lometry who now has a distribution company in the city who sells really cool kind of small producer french wine and he was the gm at the time so he was the one that kind of first helped me out in the business and his wife was the events director at cafe gray and so there'd be wine events there sometimes, and they'd like they let me in, and I'd be able to go to tastings and things like that. And so, I, like, I got immersed in it pretty quickly.
0: It sounds like just by being a helpful, nice guy, you kind of
1: yeah. I mean, I think if there's a lesson to be learned for people that want to get into the wine business, it's you know volunteer your time and be willing to help out, and you know, good things happen. You know, I think was the moral of the story with me in the city. And so the same with ASA, I just kind of helped out and then they were like, Hey, this person's looking for a sommelier job and this guy's nice. And I didn't know anything about wine, but I was willing to learn.
0: What did you find employers were looking for when they were hiring people? I
1: think that's it. You know, I think that people just wanted somebody who was eager and willing to work and open-minded. And now that I'm in the position to hire lots of people like that, literally that's all I'm looking for. I mean, some a little batch of wine knowledge and a lot of passion goes a long way. You know, I don't necessarily need experts right now. You know, we can teach people. Which is part of the good thing about the wine business, I think, is that people are very open to educating new people.
0: Do you think that's evolved over time? I mean, let me put it another way. At one point, there was kind of one set of wines that were really popular. Now, it's a whole other set. It's almost like being trained in the previous sets not really that helpful unless you're at one of those venues where it's really helpful. Right. So, has it created this opportunity where it's easier to hire people without a lot of previous knowledge because really, you know, it's kind of a new set of wines anyway?
1: To a certain extent. I mean, but I still think that a good wine program kind of is representative of the wine world, not necessarily what the current trend or current tastes are what people are currently drinking. So if I'm in charge of a wine program, I'm going to have some wine for people that are not sommeliers, you know? And I think that's very important. And I think like a good wine program really serves a lot of different people. And so if people are way into the wines that everyone's drinking right now, and they don't know anything about the wines that people drank eight, 10, 12 years ago, like that's a flaw, you know, from my perspective, I want people who have, an ability to see what fashion means and also the wines that everybody are, is drinking right now is only a small set of people you know a lot of people still drink the things that everybody drank 10 years ago or 12 years ago it's just the cognoscenti don't anymore nobody sits down like oh i've got a bottle of harlan what are you doing tonight
0: you know? well i mean some of your friends might i feel like you have some collector relationships in the city that are pretty strong i mean you have, you know some people who open up serious wine
1: i do yeah you know, and the thing is, is a lot of those guys' tastes have evolved a lot, too, along with the same way that kind of everyone else is. I met those guys when I was pretty early on and pretty young in the wine business, and a lot of them were really into Burgundy then, even. But some of the guys were big California guys when I first started. But, you know, over time of those guys really searching out wine and hanging out with, you know, other myself and other sommeliers in the city… You know, we would turn them on to new things and now those guys, you know, they're texting me and be like, oh, I just bought Magnums and Matros and like, really? Remember when you only drink Colgan? That's like the opposite wine. And they're like, you know, I'm open-minded now, you know? So uh, it's been interesting with the the path, I, you know, their, their path through the wine business too.
0: Did that surprise you?
1: Yes, <laughs> it definitely did.
0: Because when you got in it, did you think, oh, a lot of this is going to change? Like a lot of this fashion is going to change? Or did you realize once it had happened that it was going to
1: happen? You know, when I got into it, I don't know whether I necessarily recognized the fashion aspect of it. I think it's only through time and experience that you start to see how trends change and things like that. At the time, I was just like excited that uh, this whole world existed and people were like excited about the things that I was excited about. Because I came, I mean, Maine, where I grew up, is a very small place. It's very insulated. It's very nice and very cute and very safe. But you don't, you're not exposed to the world so much, you know, which is part of the, one of the reasons why I like New York so much. It's just like, wow, this is all of the world in one city. This is amazing, you know. And so, I didn't necessarily know about trends or things like that. It was just culture, you know. And then now that I've been here for some time, you start to see and. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a big dogmatic guy, and I'm not a guy who's necessarily, you know, chased those trends in wine around the city. Like, there's a lot of great wine that I've, that I've had, even recently, that sommeliers would be like, really? I was like, yeah, this wine's great. Like yeah. more classics. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was when I worked at Clicking and Sons, I was a big booster, and I still remain a big booster of those old classic California wines, BV and uh, Louis Martini, and, you know, those wines from the 60s and 70s are outrageously delicious you know and but i think in general people don't pay attention to them as much because people want to drink Clover yard you know?
0: so what was your next move after amuse
1: that next move was my first sommelier job um working at beacon restaurant which is Waldy maloof's restaurant who's he's now head of the cia upstate and this was right after he was the chef at the rainbow room he opened this in the late 90s and so um that was kind of a little bit of a a fun time. That was one of the more fun times of my career. It was my first sommelier job. The crew there, the the guys that ran it, the wine director, the service director, the lady who's like the head bartender, are all still friends of mine, and are all like successful people. And it was a lot of fun at that time. It was a lot of learning. Um, and that was really where I started to learn about the world of wine. Cause Troy Weissman had written a list there that was super geeky and German and didn't make any sense with the food. But like both of us were like 24 and just getting into, you know, whatever we thought was excited about, which made Waldie mad. But, um, but it was a really fun time and it was a, it was a very good restaurant for quite some time. This sort of two years that we were there, a year and a half, it was the most successful time in the history of that restaurant. It was
0: West Midtown, right?
1: Yeah. It was 56th street between fifth and sixth.
0: So probably kind of businessman clientele.
1: Yeah, definitely. A lot of like regulars from the Rainbow Room days. And yeah, very businessy midtown. It was kind of a steakhouse. You know, Waldy's thing was like, he wrote a bunch of cookbooks about high heat and wood fired ovens and stuff like that. So it was a lot of roasted meats. And, you know, if we were smart, it would have been just like all Rhone wine and Southern Italian. But instead it was, you know, all Austrian and German wine, <laughs> Spatleys or Riesly. Um But you know, we like the wines. You know, and it was at that time. You know, that was the one thing where I started to get into fashion of wines because that was it when everybody was screaming about German wine because nobody drank Riesling forever. And you know, and then Paul Greco started to get on the bandwagon, and then everybody else started to get excited about it. So Troy was a big, big uh, flag waver for that in those days.
0: And I remember it being a somewhat big space with a private dining room upstairs. Yeah, it was huge.
1: Yeah, there was mezzanine. There was, I mean, there was a lot of a lot of space. There was a big restaurant. So we get busy um it was fun though you know it was that was the first time that i ever liked sommelier before you know just talking to people about wine was sort of novel and exciting and actually and through that time i met a lot of those collectors um met a lot of winemakers that i'm still friends with all kind of from that time when those guys were coming to the city or they were coming out and everyone you know it was like that that was the like that mid 90s early 2000s big wine swell in new york city like i was kind of caught in the, you know, the end of it, you know, when it went from four sommeliers in New York City or five to now however many we can, you know, hundreds. So you
0: remember a wine culture where there was less than 10 sommeliers <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and obviously you're working in one that's very different than that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The wine industry now is so much bigger and more diverse than it was at the beginning of my career. And I'm still a young man, you know, I'm 35 years old. So that's been the most remarkable thing i think that's happened in my in our careers you know in the past 10 or 15 years so i mean it's pretty it's been fascinating to sort of be along for the ride of it and see you know what's happened what are the hallmarks of those well i mean just the time where people would just come in and ask for a glass of red and a glass of white was not that long ago but now uh, and one of the outlets in Le district, the wine bar, I'm pouring 40 wines by the glass and I'm selling at least three cases of each a week, you know, up. And so, and it's geeky wine from France that people are like, Oh yeah, I love wines from the Savoie. You know, I love wines from, you know, Collier and people had no idea about any of those wines 10 years ago.
0: It would have been Cabernet, Merlot, Chardonnay, and then trailing up with Sauvignon Blanc, and mm-hmm. then everything else would have just kind of sat there.
1: Yeah, would have sat there forever if you had any wines from anywhere else. But now it's become so much more diverse. It's a, it's interesting, and it's exciting, too. Because I think that because it's become much more democratic, and the wines that used to be inexpensive that people drank a lot of, Burgundy, things like that, are now out of reach for most people, everybody started to drink more stuff because people like fell in love with wine, and then all of a sudden it became too expensive. That's the other thing that's kind of happened kind of for the negative a little bit. A lot of the wines, prices have skyrocketed.
0: But what about the personnel side? I mean, it sounded like you saw some changes. In, in who yeah, was I the mean, sommelier.
1: absolutely. The, what happened was, is, you know, the, there used to be four or five sommeliers that were probably the best sommeliers that this city has ever seen. Daniel John S. and, you know, we talked a little bit about Larry Stone. And, I mean, from my perspective, Larry Stone knows the most about wine of anybody. You know, and he was one of the couple of sommeliers. But now there, when there's 200, you don't have 200 Daniel Johnnesses and Larry Stones. You know, you have 20, you know, that's gotten you know, people who are at the top of their game, you know, 25. And then a ton of people that are learning that are now called sommeliers, you know, which is, and they do the job of a sommelier, but it's become a little bit more diverse and a little bit more diluted a little bit. And But that's that's also a good thing. I think it's not a negative thing, but that's been a big change. Like, you know, people have six, seven sommeliers that work in a restaurant. I mean, I'm trying to hire as many sommeliers as I can right now because the days of floor managers running service are sort of become, you know, are, are, not, you know, are over to the, you know, because it's cheaper to pay seven sommeliers to do it, you know, rather than three, four managers salaried $60,000 a year apiece. So, you know, it's been an economic thing too.
0: So has that shifted what it means to be a sommelier from when you... Sure where sommelier in 0405 to now.
1: Yes, it has. I feel like those kind of classic sommelier jobs are now sort of secluded to four-star restaurants where all you do is talk to tables and sell wine and that's your whole job. Or maybe it's to big wine programs because the clicking on sounds where we had a big wine program, you know, the same thing. We had sommeliers whose only job was to be sommeliers, train the staff, talk to guests, but, you know, it's a lot more like the modern, you know, or the nomad where you, those guys have big, huge teams of sommeliers that take sections and drive service. And it's a smart way to do it from an economic perspective. You know, you still call the people sommeliers and they still are doing wine service. So they can still say, I'm a sommelier, but they do a lot more. But, you know, I also think that that's what I always tried to teach my sommeliers that they should be the best waiters on the floor. You have to know everything about food, everything about service, and everything about all of the beverage, wine, liquor, cocktails, beer, the whole thing. So it's also a natural progression of that, I think.
0: One of the things I noticed over that same kind of time period is that it went from four-star and overachieving three-star restaurants really driving the wine culture in New York to open field. Yeah, You could be a four-star, three-star restaurant that had a great wine program, but you could be like just a wine bar that was like affecting the conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think that one of the places where I used to work was a big reason for that. Tribeca Grill was a super casual, not super, but a casual restaurant with a huge wine program. And they got that idea from Emeralds in uh, New Orleans. They went down there and they said, you know, this is a huge restaurant that's serving gumbo and things like that. And Greg Harrington had a huge wine program down there. And so they went back and they said, well, you know, there's only so much money we can make selling steaks. Maybe we should start selling raias, you know. And that's, you know, that and a couple of other places, you know, were I think the first places in New York that started to have casual or, you know, less formal restaurants with big wine programs.
0: Because I remember I had a boss who said, you can only sell a guest one entree per person, but you can sell them three bottles of
1: wine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think smart restaurateurs have always realized that. But it involves a little bit of an investment. And a Tribeca Grill, because it's all owned by celebrities and people that don't necessarily care so much about money, they were able to invest a lot of money from, you know, the Weinstein brothers and Bill Murray and Robert De Niro into the wine program without those guys being like, where's our money? Because the Weinstein brothers aren't relying on Tribeca Grill for a revenue stream.
0: And at the same time, they want to be at the prestigious place. So if yeah. it adds to the prestige of the place, like they want to be associated with the, yeah. the great place. Yeah, you know?
1: absolutely. So... You know, so that, you know, changed the way that things worked a little bit. And now, you know, you see it all over the place where you have casual restaurants with big, huge wine programs that as long as they're busy and you can create a buzz and support it financially, then it makes a ton of sense. And one of the reference points that you've
0: brought up to me in your career is Burn Steakhouse, which Mm -hmm. is a steakhouse Mm -hmm. in Tampa that also has a gigantic wine list.
1: Yeah, that was sort of what I always wanted Calico and Sons to be, is I wanted it to be sort of Burns Steakhouse North. And uh, the food at Calicion Sons was a little more refined than the food at Burns, but I wanted it to be just full of old wine that was inexpensive that, you know, that you couldn't find anywhere else. You know, people go to Burns and they drink Beaujolais from the 60s. You know, that's the type of thing that I always wanted wine programs that I ran to be. If, if you have money, you can go and drink DRC anywhere in this country. And it doesn't really matter, but there's not a whole lot of places where you can go and drink old Gigandas and like Wente, Gewürztraminer from the seventies and, you know, wines like that that are, I find a lot of fascination and a lot of pleasure in those wines and especially over a meal as a sort of a timepiece of history. And especially if they're sound, some of those bottles I think have been outrageously good. And they are things that nobody would ever expect to get.
0: So moving past the classical canon and being yeah. like, hey, these other wines that have been made for a while also age well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think one of the responsibilities in a restaurant is to present a bottle of wine to somebody who's ready. I mean, like not the person that the bottle's ready to drink because people are, get off of work, they want to have a meal and they want to go home to their kids or whatever. They don't have four or five hours to sit and wait for Barolo from 2010 to open up. I'd much rather drink Spana from the 60s at the same price as Giacosa 10.
0: Well, it'd probably be less. <laughs> well, <it laughs> probably that, would be less. The, the Giacosa <laughs> 10 is probably right. twice. Right. The, you
1: know. right, and isn't there so much more pleasure of drinking, you know, 66 Spana than 10 Giacosa?
0: But so what are the challenges to making that kind of list? I mean, I feel like you're always going to be chasing a fairly small lots of wine, trying to put them on a the list.
1: Yeah, the challenges is it, it's sort of all-encompassing, and you have to do an immense amount of shopping. And you also, you know, people would call me up and be like, why aren't you buying any wine for me? What did I do to you? You know, I've got so many phone calls from from people that run distribution companies that I've been friends with for a decade at Clicking on being like, what, what did we do? Can I repair this relationship? I was like, I have no problem with you. You know, it's not that. It's just I'm trying to build something that you guys can't really provide for me.
0: Because distribution often now is locked into selling the current vintage.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's like you want to pre-order 2013 Burgundies, and I was I would be like, no, you know, maybe white Burgundy, but who knows whether I'm going to have this job in 10 years? And um, by the time that this re- you know this wine's ready to drink, and my bosses don't want to sit on this wine in the wine cellar for 10 years, so you can have a wine list that is ready to drink. And is making money. You know, you're selling these old wines, And it's not because you sat on them. It's because you went down and shopped all over the world to find them.
0: Because in an earlier era, I think people would have thought, oh, Tour d'Argent, this restaurant's going to be here for 200 years. This guy is going to have this job as a sommelier here for 30 years, 40 years. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense for me to buy my current Bordeaux vintage, put it away for 15 years, and then we'll bring it out when it's ready. But in a very changeable dynamic new york yeah restaurant scene there's really no guarantee that the restaurant's going to be open three months let alone 10 years
1: yeah well you think you know tour d'argent or you know there's large wine programs in europe a lot of times they own the building it's a multi-generational thing in new york city the amount of people that own the buildings that their restaurants are in is minuscule but a lot of the ones that do have wine programs that are built in that old way like Harry's downtown like Harry just bought 10 cases of bordeaux every year from 1972 until now and now he's got a ton of wine there but they own the building and Tribeca Grill same thing they would buy many cases of cote and burgundy and stuff like that but De Niro owns the building so
0: and even something more current like Pearl Nash mm-hmm. you know one of the partners owns the building owns right the building. yeah it so makes the more pre- sense.
1: yeah the pressure to pay $50,000, $80,000 a month in rent, it's not there, you know, so you can invest some of that money that you would just throw away into rent into the wine program and you can build it the more sort of old-fashioned way. And in Europe, too, they can buy the wine directly from the producers. Whereas here, you have to deal with the SLA and the stupid distribution system, which sort of has ruined the ability to build wine programs like that. You know, I can't get a case of Rumier. I get one bottle of Bonmar Mar and three bottles of Cra and
0: because no. you're saying allocations are dictated by law.
1: By law now. So you have to go outside the distribution system. Like If I want a case of Salos, I have to go buy it in France. Because I get two bottles of Rosé, maybe, because there's three cases that come to New York. Whereas you go to Paris and there's case stacks of Koch and Salos. Because those guys still make a lot of wine. They just don't sell it all to you know the US.
0: Yeah, I was in Madrid recently and I saw literally case stacks of Cédric Bouchard. And yeah. I said, huh.
1: <laughs> yeah In February I was in Paris same thing four cases of Solos Rosé at this place for like 125 euro and it was so I bought six bottles and brought it back and you know then somebody's like hey your one bottle of Solos Rosé showed up and it's 265 dollars a bottle so I think that those pressures with the SLA and those pressures with restaurants with rent and all of that kind of stuff started to force changes in the way that wine lists were written in New York um, and I kind of you know just sort of went along with it but it's also forced wine lists to be immediately better because you have to buy wine from all over and auction in China, and you know, and if you're not buying Lafitte and things like that, nobody's faking those wines. You know,
0: like nobody's like, faking '60s bottles. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: nobody's like if I'm buying '85 Ridge, Geyserville's Zinfandel at auction, like nobody's faking that because you sell it for less money than you would buy it for. So I always felt safe building wine programs like that too, because the amount of bottles that I got that were messed up were very, very, very few over buying wine from all over the world for years.
0: Whereas if you were going for those high echelon wines, you might feel more trepidation about buying in the secondary market. Yeah,
1: for sure. You know, like if you want to buy DRC and Premier and Old Bordeaux, you know, first growths, you know, who knows where those wines, you know, because also the prices for them are so outrageously high.
0: You're better off maybe buying through the distribution. Yeah,
1: in that case, for sure, at least you know where it comes from, you know. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. Depends on what you want to fill your wine list up with. You can get, like, two bottles of 2,000 LaTosh and keep it around, but those bottles are still going to be, you know, $3,000 on the wine list. Even if it's a great deal, it's 1800 bucks. But also the pressure to continually refill those stocks is less because you're going to sell less of it.
0: Oh, so it's actually nice to have a few placeholders so you're not constantly yeah. trying to replace the entire
1: list. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a wine list still has to look a certain way, from my perspective.
0: Because it sounds like, really... That's a lot of work for you. I yeah. mean, let me put it another way: it might be less work to take the 10k drop of the current vintage thing and be like, "Well, this is what we sell, and you know, we'll decant it for you." Yeah, rather than hunting down around the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's less work, but I, I always loved, you know, I've always loved it. You know, it's
0: the thrill of the chase. Yeah, it's of like course, the fun part.
1: Yeah, I mean, because ultimately, what we are is art collectors. You know, and one of the great things about collecting art is finding it. And then, like, kind of showing it off to your friends.
0: Like, hey, this is my list. Yeah,
1: of course. Yeah, it's like, look at all this art that I found all over the world. You know, I didn't didn't make any of it. I just really appreciate it.
0: But you haven't been in New York that long, really. I mean, it's been 10 years now, but you come in. Yeah. And what are some of the keys to finding the stockpiles, you know? What are some of the keys to...
1: Well, one of the lessons I learned early on in the wine business is it's really, really, really about networking and about getting out and just shaking hands with people and putting your face in front of people and just saying, Hey, my name's Ryan Millsnap. Nice to meet you. You know? And then here's my card. Here's Cause a- I've
0: done that. But every time I say, Hey, my name's Ryan Millsnap," <laughs> it doesn't seem to have the same effect that it has for you.
1: Um, well, you know, I'm not sure what it is. I tried Levy Dalton and the same thing happened to me.
0: You got kicked out of places. <laughs>
1: <Yep>. <laughs>
0: people started asking you to pay him back that money and stuff.
1: <laughs> they said, Oh, you're Levy Dalton
0: been looking for you
1: (laughs) um and so you know just by like making your wants and needs known all around town you know like you know slowly things start to come out of the woodwork you just get an email being like hey listen you know i just bought this cellar from umbria this restaurant closed do you want any of these wines and the first time somebody sends you those emails and you say yes i'll take it all then you start to get more of those and so i mean that i guess that's also predicated on having a restaurant where you sell a lot of wine
0: and you've often been in high volume mm-hmm. restaurants. Yeah. When you look at it.
1: Yeah, often. Yeah. I mean, restaurants that were pretty well known for wine, you know, and Clicking on Sounds wasn't that, but we made it that. Over a couple of years, but the volume was always a lot high. of volume.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of volume at Beacon, a lot of volume at Gleekyon Sons, a lot of volume at Tribeca Grill, yep. a lot of volume at Le District. I yeah. mean, when you look at most of the places,
1: yeah, I haven't worked at too many little bistros, you know. Well, you also
0: all. weren't working at like the chef's counter place where they have thirteen guests. Yeah, I uh, yeah, that's it, I
1: mean, you know. except for two years at Corton, but you know, I was also working at Tribeca Grill at that same time. So Corton was like the kind of place where we could play around and you know open montrachet for people, and it was low key, and you know we do forty covers a night, and then. Tribeca Grill we're doing 250 you know so
0: so you're kind of putting on different hats depending <laughs> on which shift you're going yeah to work.
1: yeah depending on what I was doing where so
0: because I could see the food pairing challenges being very different at those two restaurants <laughs> as well
1: <laughs> yeah that's for sure yeah I mean Tribeca Grill is the steakhouse for the most part um and Paul Liebrand's food is super complex and so you know to a certain extent you kind of shoot towards the middle you know with that you know and then periodically you get the things that just work brilliantly he had this foie gras dish that he used to do that was like coated in this like cherry gelée. And you know the Tomte Cerise wines? Yeah, th- sure. You know, that are like funky wines from mm-hmm. South of France. Um, Axel Prufer, that guy. Um, they He had this wine called the Vonti Popolo that was like a lot of carignan. And it was like this just liver and cherry wine that was the most brilliant pairing with this liver and cherry dish that Paulie Brandt did. And that was like the crowning achievement for us at Corton that we found one wine that went brilliantly with one of his dishes.
0: Because he was doing a lot of stuff like, hey, there's the sweet, there's the savory, there's the different textures all on the same plate
1: yeah and he would you know move all around the world for influences like he would do like really traditional english stuff of like jellied eel and then he would do it with miso and it was really just kind of like a mix of flavors from all over the world he's an exceptionally talented chef um, and i'm still quite friends with it i see i'm still friends with him i see him quite a bit because he lives across the street from the district but that he's definitely it was hard to track his brain you know I think one of the things about being a sommelier is you need to sort of get inside of your chef's head and figure out what they're thinking about sometimes, especially when they're making really kind of avant-garde food. And with him, we kind of always were trying to shoot, trying to figure out what he was thinking. he'd be like, oh, it's just kind of smoky, you know. (laughs) Like, well, it's got 38 ingredients. What are you talking about?
0: Because sometimes I feel like certain chefs like to keep it consistent. Like, hey, here's our menu. Mm -hmm. And then others like to change it up on the regular. Yeah. And sometimes... One of those things is easier to pair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I mean, he always wanted to have a super dynamic restaurant, so he would always change things a lot. And, you know, it's interesting to look at the dynamics of it, that Tribeca Grill, you know, has kind of settled into a niche and does the same thing, has been open since 1990, and when you tinker around with menus and expectations a lot, sometimes you lose people
0: like the guests are like, Oh, what happened to that dish that I've ordered for the last 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And they get mad at you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They get upset and they're like, you know, I I like that restaurant, but I just never know what's going on. I don't know. It's, it's complicated the restaurant business in that sense. But one of
0: them's a place that's been open a long time and has its set thing. And then the other one's trying to make its impression.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about which is kind of advanced restaurants a little further because i think a lot of time people would say paul ebrand's food has pushed restaurants a lot further forward but i don't know whether whether that's the case or not
0: because one of them's been there a long time and maybe had pronounced influences and the other one's not there anymore
1: yeah like Gramercy tavern that, that they've trained so many you know chefs through that place and it's been pretty consistent but not groundbreaking for however long they've been open which is probably now 20 something years you know
0: and a lot of sommeliers have come through Tribeca Grill. Yeah. When absolutely. you look at the crew absolutely, who's yeah. come through.
1: Yeah. A lot of us, you know. And it's it's been interesting. And it, that's a testament, I think, to originally Drew's sort of embracing of the wine industry. You know, like, and just hiring, you know, one of Drew's talents is sort of hiring talent. Like, he's got an eye for talent a little bit, I think. And he also lets talented people do whatever they want, which sometimes can be negative and sometimes can be positive, you know, but. You know, I think he did that really well with it, for the wine business, and especially like in hiring Daniel and David Gordon and then leaving those guys up to also find other talented people. You know, all the people that came through Montrachet and then all the people that David hired at Tribeca Grill.
0: But it sounds like a lot of what you were doing with pairing at Carton was let's throw some burgundy at it.
1: <laughs> like,
0: you know, when you say aim towards the middle, yeah, yeah. you're like, uh, I don't know. Burgundy tastes good.
1: <laughs> yeah, kind of, it's like champagne, Riesling and Burgundy, you know, cause you just try to have some acid and like try to also have some fruit. So, and then hopefully it works out pretty well.
0: Did you find that Lee Brand's food was higher in acid than some of the other restaurants you'd worked in?
1: Not necessarily always, but you know, I think that when you have, when you try to shoot towards the middle, acidity and wine always is like kind of the first thing you want to look for is because, you know, I think it just balances food out better than if we're trying to pair things with, you know, fat wine from, you know, all over the world, you know, like Paso Robles and things like that, you know, like those wines are much more specific and, you know, wines with acidity are much more broad.
0: So chart it out for me, you work at Beacon and then what happens after Beacon?
1: So I went and worked at, Spice Market for about a year.
0: What was um, that like? Because it used to be super hot.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, we were... Like,
0: that's where you went on the yeah. cool date. Like, that girl that you really wanted to hook up with. Yeah, it was a, there.
1: I mean, it it was a crazy restaurant. I mean, it was sort of like dog years in restaurants. Like, if you were there for a year, you were there for seven years, you know? <laughs> so, because we were doing, like, 1,200 covers a day, and, you know, it was just cranking all the time. I mean, they used to have to have a bouncer, you know, like, at a restaurant, which was crazy. I mean, we had three stars from the New York Times too. It was like the only three star restaurant with bouncers, and you know, so it was fun. That I mean, that was a very that was a learning experience too, just how to deal with the volume of that kind of thing, where you're just ordering things in sort of bulk and just you know trying to find something that's the best and cranking through it in highest, you know, in the highest volume that you can find it in. But, you know, I was there for a year. We were short-staffed. All of us just worked all day long every day for like a year straight. And then David Gordon called me and was like, hey, we're looking for a sommelier at Tribeca Grill because he and I had met at a poly, I think, because Bernie was still the corporate wine director for jean George. And when I was there, um, Spice Market was still part of the jean George restaurant group. So, And this was like maybe in the early days of the Apolle. This is 2005, which I think, you know, they maybe had two or three at that point in time. And then... You know, they were just still having like waiters come and work the poly at that point in time because there wasn't sommeliers for it. So Bernie's like, like, hey, Bernie, can I work the poly? They're like, great. Yes. What <laughs> can you be there? Um, a little different now. Yeah, it's a little different now. And so through that, I'd met David Gordon and he called me up and said, hey, you know, this was 2006, I think 2007, one or the other. Um, it's like, hey, do you want to come talk to me about the sommelier job? And then, you know, it went from there and, you know, I worked there for four years. What did you pick up? I mean, wine oh, wines. I mean that like started to give me the appreciation for. I tasted more, you know. That's where I started to taste all the great wines of the world, of with back vintages and taste old things and being around really like great wines of the world. That's when I really was started to get exposed to it. I mean, we had some of the stuff at Beacon, not so much at Spice Market and. You know, I tasted some of those wines at Amuse, you know, and they were there, but it was still kind of casual, whereas Tribeca Grill was known as a wine destination. People would come to drink the wine. The wines were inexpensive on the list. You know, you could still, when I started there, get Rias for under 200 bucks, 150 bucks. You know, there's tons of old faunselets and, you know, lots of wines from the Southern Rhone and Burgundy and stuff. So it started to be around and that's what I, when I really started to see the world of wine and for all of its glory. And
0: probably strengthen some relationship with collectors, both yeah. by being at our place for four years, by having it be a wine hotspot, and by working events like La Poly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All of those things. And we would do lots of – Tribeca Grill was also really BYOB friendly. There's a group of guys. One of the guys was an investor in Corton, and they would do big, like – We're going to do a Vogue Musigny dinner with all the great vintages from 59 to 1995, you know, and we'll do, you know, the single vineyard gigal dinners with all of the great vintages and we'll do a rice dinner back to the forties, you know, and they would bring all these wines in. And then I really was kind of exposed to the wines that way. And that's a big education, you know, because otherwise you're never going to be able to taste those wines. Unless somebody brings them in, because you're not gonna also sell them in a restaurant that often anymore. Anymore. Like yeah. with the price range, yeah. Changes that Yeah, we've unless seen. you're at Per se or Danielle or something like that, or maybe Eleven Madsen Park, you're not gonna sell those wines consistently at any other restaurant in the city. So so we were friendly to for people to bring them in and we charge them kind of a flat corkage and you know, I'd get to taste legendary wines. That was and that also is how you meet collectors.
0: And do you think that that kind of played into your having a classic palate?
1: Probably. Yeah. I think that still to this day, I mean, cause I, I also am very experimental and I taste a lot of different wines and you know, some of my friends who are sommeliers in the city are, you know, well known for tasting, for like sort of driving a lot of new brands and tasting a lot of new wines in the city and I'll hang out with them and drink the wines. But still, I think the best wines are sort of, you know, the wines that are great, quote unquote, a lot of the times. Well,
0: so. we've seen a lot of shift in say champagne on, yeah. that, on that kind of
1: Yeah, Champagne's the exception, you know. But you know, like I think a lot of growers now are much better than for the almost across the board than a lot of the good houses or historically good houses. Yeah, I mean that's been an interesting thing because Champagne is also I think the most exciting wine region in the world right now, just because of this explosion of growers that, which makes me wonder where Dom Perignon's getting all their grapes for now, because it seems like everybody's making their own thing. But I guess enough people still sell it for them to make millions of cases. I recently saw how much Dom Perignon is in New York City, like the inventory. And it's just in one city, it's impressive about how much of the wine is made. And like, if you and I could go to Dubai and drink a bottle of Dom Perignon, we could go to Singapore, drink a bottle of Dom Perignon, we could go to London, drink a bottle of Dom Perignon, we can drink one right here in this apartment. And it's the same, all of those places. And I mean, it's remarkable how much of that wine is made.
0: And I think right about tracking with your and my career, there started to be more concern with rarity, which I really, I kind of, I maybe I'm wrong. I'd be curious what you think. I kind of associate it as really starting with, in a big way, at the high end, with the Colt cabs of the 90s in Colga and Colgan and Because I think before, no one that I remember was like, oh, well, I like Latour, but they make so much of it, I don't
1: know. Right.
0: And now that's a real common... Like almost every time you hear that now when the subject comes up, like, oh, it's not really rare. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas I feel like before Right Bank Bordeaux Garagi's thing and before California Cold cap, that wasn't really part of the conversation at the high end. Yeah. The conversation was like, this is the wines that I like. These are the acknowledged greats. I get them every year.
1: But I think maybe part of that is the explosion in people's knowledge of the world of wine you know i mean even like if you look even back at historical um wine lists you know they, it wasn't you know this producer it was like i'll have the chambertin and i'll have the lafitte and i mean bordeaux was the only place with brands everything else was just vineyards and things like that so it be- became less about who made it and where it was from and so but as people have learned more and more about wine then they've wanted to get more and more into it. And then, you know, rarity becomes much more important. And then also social media is a big part of that too. Like I had a bottle of Gentas last night. It doesn't exist. And then everyone's like, Ooh, ah, you had that. Wow. You know? And so there's a certain amount of exhibitionism to that as well. And I think that also goes hand in hand. Like if we drank a bottle of the tour, you know, they made 40,000 other cases, but if we drank a bottle of Gentas, you know, What's, you know, and we put it on social media, then it's a big deal.
0: So does that affect how you construct lists is the idea that if someone comes into my restaurant and they get a bottle of Latour, that's going to be less special than if they come into my restaurant and get a bottle of Gentaz because there's going to be this multiplying factor of the sense that they couldn't have done that anywhere else. Does that change how you construct a wine list?
1: Yeah, well, I think it changes about how you approach a couple of different brands. You know, I think that one of the things about rarity is if you have just one of those bottles, if you have old Versailles or, you know, any of the other wines that everyone chases after on your wine list, then you have a good wine list. You know, it doesn't matter what you have for the other 700 selections. If I have one bottle of Versailles and it's within reason, like reasonably priced, then it's like, Oh, this guy's got a great wine list. We can go down there and we can drink, you know, all of these things. So being able to find a couple of those bottles does a lot for just the perception of the way people think about your wine list or whether or not you have people come and drink. But this is also like a, such a small subset of the population who knows the, the wines that we're talking about. And It doesn't make a difference to 99.9% of the people that come into the restaurant because everyone else just comes to the restaurant for the food and the service and it's near their house or their job and they like it and people, people are nice to them and they like wine, but they don't want to go crazy. Like that's everybody, you know, the amount of people that are coming in because they want to drink Magnums of Raymond Trollot, you know, like 10 of us or whatever, you know? So I try to take a little bit more of a broader view of those wines and the way to approach it in the world, because I try not to get too far down the sommelier rabbit hole.
0: Does that mean if you're sitting on something like Saint Sancerre Rouge that you don't want the waiter going over and be like, Hey, you should try this Pinot Noir. <laughs> like, does that mean right. that you sometimes need to limit the sale?
1: Yeah, you do. I mean, and I think one of the things about the district that I've had had to do is because the volume is so high, but I still have some of these wines is I kind of like can't list them a little bit right now. Anyway, I mean, maybe once wants to get the team built up a little bit because it's so new, but like, if I want to put on gel on the list, it's going to be there for three days. And just because of the rarity of the wine, I mean, I don't know whether it's any greater than the, I mean, any other Romane from a one from a good producer but it's rarer, so you don't want to sell it. So, I don't know. It's, you think about both of things. You know? And I don't know whether all these wines, I don't know whether rarity makes wine better, is the other thing about it. You certainly are more careful with it. but
0: Well, it certainly affects the price point. Yeah, of course. I mean, we can yeah, yeah. definitely yeah, agree Yeah, on absolutely.
1: That. Yeah, of course.
0: So, how did you end up at La District in the first place?
1: I had known Harry and Peter um, who are the owners. Uh, well, not P- not Harry, but Peter who owns the district for a while just because a friend of mine used to be the GM at Harry's. Down. The place you mentioned. Yeah. On Hanover Street that Harry opened in the 1970s, which has been a long time. Um, sort of Wall Street. Stable. like when when peter was born it was on the front page of the wall street journal and because of harry's importance to the people in the financial district so i'd known him for a long time and we had talked for years about you know doing some restaurant stuff together and the timing ended up being right they were opening this super complex thing and i was looking for something new so that's kind of how it came together peter and i sat down and had a long meeting talking about what he was thinking of doing and it seemed like it was something that was uh, gonna fit and it seems like a, a pretty big scope of a project. Yeah, I mean I think that it's by far the largest scope of anything that I have ever had to do. I mean, we sell an outrageous amount of wine there. And that that presents a lot of challenges. Where we'll sell forty or fifty cases of wine in two days. It's remarkable how much wine people drink. It's been interesting. It's been a it's a big ship to steer. For sure. Because there's five F&B outlets, you know, including the outside and the fine dining restaurant and the brasserie and the wine bar and, you know, so the beer shop, which I'm in charge of. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of moving parts. And because of that, it's really challenging. But that's a good thing, you know, to a certain extent.
0: And what do you see in terms of working in a financial district, Battery Park City Financial District? What's that scene like?
1: Well, it's kind of a brave new world down there. <laughs> my fiance kind of compared it to post-war Berlin. You know, it was sort of bombed and now it's like been rebuilt brand new and shiny. And there's close to 60,000 people that live and work within a block of the district. And there's people that have lived down there in the Battery Park since, you know, the 80s when in the 70s, maybe even like since right after they built the place that have never had any anywhere to go, you know, down there. And so people are just ecstatic that there's a place to hang out which is good because they've been patient with you know patient with us while we try to figure out this massive thing about how to you know execute service and how to get good food out to people and how to provide things to people that they want and so it's been pretty interesting you know i think that the crowd down there is pretty astute you know and um, pretty accepting so it's as far as clientele of places that i've worked it's been pretty good. You know, I like it. And That's a, of, a
0: rare combination. Astute and accepting. Is, yeah. You don't usually get both of those.
1: Yeah. It's not something that people talk about New Yorkers in that sense very often, um, which has also been sort of surprising, you know, for me. That
0: like that smart person who knows the subject, has a lot of money to spend on it, and is pretty chill. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it's kind of like what you want. Right,
0: right. But so rarely find, (laughs) you know what I mean? So,
1: I mean, but when you do, when when there's thousands of people walking through every day, you know, there's also a thousand different personalities and opinions and things like that. So trying to make it so everyone's happy is also a challenge. And so, you know, and we're not even a hundred percent open yet. We still have the fine dining restaurant to open. That's going to be all tasting menus and, you know, a little bit more sort of like 28 seats, like Corton style or tasting, you know, like counter style. And that's kind of what drew me to the project to begin with, is that we can go super casual and just drink beer and rosé on the patio, or you can sit down and have a multi-course meal and drink famous wines of the world. You know, and there's not a whole lot of places in anywhere where you get to explore all of those aspects of beverage.
0: I mean, in a way, it's like a hotel, but there's no rooms, right? Like, you know, the the hotel place has like all the different levels of the restaurant. In
1: a way, it's kind of like a casino without, you know, without rooms or gambling, you know, because you want to, we sort of present a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And it certainly feels like we're opening something of that size because we have hundreds of employees and just training everybody and making sure that the face that you put out to people is what you want people to see.
0: I think a lot of times people wonder, wow, fine dining versus casual. Where's the line on that? Like, what's more popular these days? You know, seems like casual or sometimes. Yeah. What do you see?
1: I mean, I think casual will always be more popular. It's where the volume is. and But it's not necessarily what gets all the press. You know, I think sometimes the press of things skews what's popular. So, like, as far as volume goes, you know, just outside in the wine bar, we do a lot of people. There's a lot of people that come in. It's busy all the time. But, you know, the fine dining restaurant will be the thing that, you know, we want people to talk about. That'll be sort of the crown jewel of the property when we have it open. And then it's also a grocery store, you know, which is kind of a whole other set of challenges and things that we have to think about because there's a whole retail component of it. And just like how to approach pricing and, you know, sort of things that are, you know, mundane that you don't necessarily think about present a lot of challenges. You know, I just try to, because there's different outlets and different facets, I'm able to do different things where the wine bar, you know, wine bar, you can be experimental and pour funky stuff and then also pour high-end things. And, you know, I've been pouring 04 Clodepop Blanc by the glass for a while. And we were pouring Pavillon Rouge, Chateau Margot, 94 by the glass for a while. And then down to like inexpensive Cahor and, you know, cheap wine from the South of France. And so you have a, a broad scope of things to do, and then the brasserie is—you try to just keep it classic. People want to drink Sancerre and they want to drink expensive red Burgundy in Bordeaux, and we sell a lot of it. And so you give people what you want there, and then the other—you know—the outside we just sell rosé in gallons, gallon buckets. It's outrageous. People just want to stand around and drink
0: must have been a change from how you saw rosé originally in your career. I mean, that's been a big <laughs> yeah shift.
1: Oh my God, it's unbelievable. I mean, that's the only thing that people want. I mean, like, I think I went through maybe like, I'm trying to think, how many ordered close to 65 cases of rosé last week? Uh, one week. One week. It's outrageous, but it's it's fun to see. But yeah, I mean, that's what people want to drink. You know, I think that's what they wanted to create, too. It's like being in Cannes or Saint-Tropez. You, like, sit out. You like, the good thing about there is the outside's right on the water. You know, one of the things that's kind of unique about it is everyone else's outside space is on the street. And so people want to hang out by the water and drink rosé. That's like, what people's mind puts together. Like, they see water, they think rosé and sunshine. So I don't know where that came from, but it's been, like, the last couple of years, it's like, wow. You know, it's all people want to do. Sometimes I think it's the...
0: Not in a bad sense, but industrial response to natural wine. It's an inexpensive, high-quantity, user-friendly wine that has texture as well as crispness. Yeah, for sure. At a price point.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that one of the things about wine trends for the public is that people kind of like things that taste the same, but then they just pick different grapes, you know? Like, it was like, oh, everyone drinks Merlot, and then everybody drinks Malbec. And then everyone drinks Pinot Noir, but all the wines that everyone drinks taste the same. You know, it's like it's ripe, it's juicy, it's fruit driven, it's kind of oaky. It sort of tastes like Coca Cola, you know. And so people drinking Pinot Grigio and then drinking Sancerre and then drinking inexpensive rosé, they also kind of taste the same. You know, they're citrusy and light, and you can drink it really cold in high volumes. That's the one thing. You know, when you do a lot of volume in a place, you kind of get you get a feeling of what people like.
0: You're going to be like, hey, I better order 20 cases of this, not just two. Yeah.
1: Yeah, two cases that won't even last me half a night, you know. So, that's been, I mean, that's been a challenge for writing a wine list, too, because I want the wine list to be good, and I want it to have cool things on there. But then when you have hundreds of people in every night, it's hard to have, you know, great wine in volume.
0: Because what it sounded like you were doing before was scouring the world for small lots yeah. of wine that Six was ready. Six bottles
1: of this, eight bottles of that, you know, if I got four bottles of... You know something from the 60s in or even from the 40s or 30s or even older you know like once you it takes a while to build a wine list up like that but then when like people will come and drink a bottle here a bottle there and they understand if i'm drinking 64 this there's not going to be two cases of it
0: but this sounds like a whole other ball game
1: yeah it's a whole other ball game you know when i started working there i was like my days of writing sweet wine lists are kind of over like i can do it i'll be able to do it in the apartment and to a certain extent, the apartment's of fine dining restaurant. And but then to a certain extent, I can kind of do it in the brasserie, but the other places, forget
0: about it. Because it's hard to make a jewel box when everyone's taking the jewels out of the box. <laughs> yeah, right? For sure. Like, when you everyone's know I mean? hands
1: are in the box. Yeah. There's no jewels left all of a sudden. You know? So, so I have to just sprinkle them in, you know, and then hold stuff back. So there's like a handful of gems on the wine list. And then, you know, the rest of it is stuff at least I can get a couple cases of and that are good and I have a little continuity for, but it's not like the wine that everybody looks for is very rare. I might be able to have a bottle or two on the side.
0: But it really does seem like, outside of those classic American cabs that you put on the list of Cliqueo Sons, like this has been a European endeavor like the whole career.
1: Yeah, I mean for the most part, except for old California wine, yeah, I mean I'm very much of a European wine drinker. Austria, Germany, Italy, and France are the wines that I love.
0: And I think New York kind of allows that career to happen. Like, yeah. I think that would be harder somewhere else. Yeah, be, like, I think
1: so. Yeah, I mean, outside of, like, Chicago and San Francisco, you know, like, for the most part, American wine is much more ubiquitous in, in the U.S. than European wine. But, that, I mean, that's the thing also about New York, is it's it's sort of a city that's halfway between the United States and Europe in a lot of different ways. And, you know, people in in New York, for the most part, are kind of, europhiles when it comes to wine, not just sommeliers, but, you know, guests and the general drinker, I think are a little bit more aware of wines of Europe, you know, but it's because of, I think, New York's proximity to it and also New York's history of being the landing spot for Europeans.
0: So you work with Harry and as you said, he's a famous guy and he's been buying wine for a billion years and Mm -hmm. now you work for him and what's it like working for him?
1: I like him, man. I don't, you know, Harry is also kind of retired. He doesn't run the restaurants anymore. And like, I sort of, I work more for Peter than I do for Harry, but Harry is sort of like an advisor a little bit, you know, like he comes around and, you know, he and I talk about wine a lot because he's one of the city's great wine lovers. And, you know, we talk a lot about just general overarching wine stuff and I like working for, him. I respect him a lot. He's very smart he came and sort of created a huge business and the name for himself from nothing, you know, he kind of is the American dream a little bit, like kind of bootstraps came from Greece when he was 18 years old and had nothing and sort of, you know, now Peter who, who sort of runs all the rest like has 27 restaurants and bars and, and they're very successful. So I have a lot of respect for those guys. They're very smart. Um, and they did it kind of in a, in a pretty small way too. They don't have a huge organization like a lot of the big restaurant groups, you know, they kind of have done it on their own and sort of built the businesses up and let them run. And they've been pretty successful, you know? So it's been, you know, it's been good. I I, I like working for him.
0: What's he tell you about wine?
1: He kind of, I love the history of wine, which is one of the reasons why I like old wine. So he and I just talk a lot about what wines were good when, when they kind of came around, what certain vintages were like, You know, the wines used to be like this and, oh, this guy's wines in the 80s were great. Oh, you have, you know, like, so he's got a lot of knowledge because he also drinks a lot of wine and he, and he has a lot and he tastes through stuff all the time. So he knows exactly what vintages from whom are good when, you know, more than I think anybody, especially in Bordeaux, um, more than anybody that I know, he'll know, oh yeah, I had this 83 the other day. I had the 66 this, I had this, oh, his 61s were great, you know, so I'm always like, okay, let's drink one, <laughs> and you know that's originally how you know we used to, how I met him. You know, I would just go and have lunch with him once a month, or you know, we would just sit and drink wine and talk about it. Like that was our relationship, and it was it was fun. I didn't work for him, I didn't do anything. We just hung out, and so there was always a relationship that I valued. You know I mean, because he's in his late 70s, but he's very smart and. and His stories about the way that he's done things and the way restaurants have been run in the past 40 years that he's been doing it is fascinating.
0: From this period now, all the way back to San Diego, it sounds like a lot of the success has been, you're the type of guy that other people like to have wine with. (laughs)
1: Like
0: not, not kidding around.
1: No, actually you're probably right. Yeah. like, Like,
0: oh, I'd like to open a bottle and hang out with that guy. Yeah. Like, you know.
1: For the most part, I mean, a lot of, I think that's probably the case. Yeah. I mean, it's just that I've liked, I've met people that have liked me and whom, whom I have liked, and we kind of hang out over wine and talk. And so that's kind of a lot of what my career has been a little bit. And, and I mean, and I have a love for it as well that I've wanted to explore. It was a hobby that became a career.
0: So if you look at Harry as like first generation wine guy in New York, yep. and then you go and say like, well, Daniel Jonas... David Gordon, maybe that's second generation Mm -hmm. Tim Kopex three. That puts like you, me and Patrick in like fourth generation. Yeah, fourth generation,
1: yeah, Risto. We you know, came from those guys a little bit. Yeah, I mean I didn't necessarily think about Harry or those guys, you know, but I should. Yeah. I mean like from the Sommelier perspective, Daniel and David and those guys, John Luke Ledoux, too, I think deserves a lot of credit. You know, we're kind of the first people in the city. Steve Olson, people don't talk about as much anymore, but like he was a, you know, a big deal in New York for a long time. Greg Harrington, who's not here anymore, you know, like makes wine in Washington state. Those guys, yeah, are in that like kind of first, second, like kind of generation. And yeah, we're third or fourth, you know, now now the generations have exploded and they're going to be hard to track because there's a lot of people, you know, when you have, I don't know how many Sommeliers work in Danny Meyer's restaurant group now, but it's got to be, I don't know, 30, maybe,
0: So if you look at yourself as that link between what seems like a, a big generational change, like you're connected to the old dudes, but you're seeing all the young guys or girls. Yeah. What do you tell the younger people? What would you tell them?
1: I think the most important things that i I mentioned are some humility, some intellectual rigor and an open mind. And you got to meet people like those things are the most important things to the career. And You know, I think if you have those things, you can become successful. I think the intellectual rigor is an important part of the job. I never was somebody who studied a lot to become a master sommelier. And I respect the people that do, especially who do it for the intellectual rigor of it. It's like, I want to learn about wine. And this organization is going to allow me to do that and give me the structure to do that. I, you know, I was always interested in the knowledge of my own, on my own, you know. So I never needed a reason to do it. But you know, the sort of growth of people studying for that test is a good thing because I think the intellectual rigor is an important part of the position, but you also don't need that test to become a sommelier. Often it's the reason to not be a sommelier anymore, which is one of the drawbacks of it. But so, yeah, I mean, I think those things are the most important. And what's next for you? Um, I don't know. I mean, this thing has been pretty all encompassing the district, you know, and it's basically making it as good as I possibly can. You know, I think my days of working the floor as a sommelier are probably over. You know, I've wanted to sort of expand a little bit more and start to run businesses a little bit more. I don't know. I mean, which is kind of what I'm doing now. We'll see what happens, you know, whether or not I'm permanently running the districts as we open them up across the country or not. I don't know. You know, we'll see. Like my career has not necessarily always been linear. And, you know, a lot of the times opportunities present themselves that I don't necessarily expect a lot of the time in my career, it's not. And so it's hard to say. I like what I'm doing now. I like the people that I work for. And I really like the wine business. And so those would probably be the things that, you know, drive me forward.
0: Ryan Mills Knapp of La District, he likes the wine business, and a lot of people in it have liked him. Thank you very much for being here. Today. All
1: right, thanks, Levy. This is great.
0: Ryan Mills Knapp of La District. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces.